Hey, Matthew here, with a quick note before we get started. As you know, Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, a London-based nonprofit that produces events, exhibitions, films, and books that spark debate about the built environment in London and abroad. What you might not know is that the Architecture Foundation has an app. It's called the London Architecture Guide. Launched in partnership with Brockton Capital, it's one of the AF's most ambitious projects to date a free guide to the architecture of London, incorporating over a thousand of the city's most remarkable buildings from Roman times to the present day. The app is based on an acclaimed book by architectural writers Edward Jones and Christopher Woodward, and includes an ever-expanding set of entries, photography, walking directions, and event listings. Thanks to the generous support of Brockton Capital, the app is free to download for everyone. Whether you're visiting London for the first time, discovering new buildings, or getting to know your own neighborhood, this is the app to help you explore London's stunning and often hidden architectural riches. To get the download, just search for London Architecture Guide in the App Store or on Google Play, or follow the link in the show notes. All right, now onto the show. From the Architecture Foundation, you're listening to Scaffold. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. This episode features part two of my interview with the architect Tony Fretton. We cover a range of topics in it, including the influence the architect James Gowan had on Tony, Fretton's work in photography and performance art in relation to architectural practice, as well as his approach to teaching architecture in something like rhetorical opposition to the contemporary focus on reuse. If you haven't listened to part one of Tony's interview, it might help to go back and play that first to give this one a little more context which we recorded over lunch at Fretton's home in Kentish Town in August of 2023. Either way, I hope you enjoy part two of my conversation with Tony Fretton. I want to go back to... <laughs> to what? <laughs> to Gowan. I don't feel like I want really... to go back to Canada, he said. <laughs> I want to go back to James Gowan. I don't feel like we really got to the root of it. Yeah. Your relationship with him or... Maybe another way into talking about Gowan is to talk about how you perceived his creative process. I mean, you wrote about it in a book on him, an intro to a book by Ellis Woodman. Yeah. Your essay was called Magnetic Fishing. Yes. Yeah. Could, you, could you elaborate on what you mean by that? Well, James' great skill was to, um, to show you that there were techniques um, by which you could... Uh, develop creative thinking and realize it. For example, just off the top of my head, he said, um, when you've got a plan, draw it on a small pad of paper that's small enough to put in your pocket with the external or internal elevations around it, arrayed around it. And he said, um, when your design mind stops and won't go further, which it does, we all know, do something. Ask yourself what color it should be, or ask yourself how high the window sill should be and what effect that would have on the fenestration. Ask yourself where the columns should be. So James had this way of getting around designer's block, you know. <coughs> it's very important to teach students this because they they don't know enough to carry themselves along, so they, they don't know if their work is good or bad. And you have to constantly, first of all, you have to look at it and find out if it is good or bad, and you have to 
get the good bits in their mind, and then show them how to develop it and give them confidence. And James did that by these kinds of mechanisms. And he said the, way, the reason that <coughs> the essay was called Magnetic Fishing was that um, he said um, creative thinking is like the experience you have when you go to a fair and there's a, a pool of inky water and you have fishing rods with magnets on them and you put them in the water. This, I, this was what fairgrounds were like when I was young. And, um, and then if you're lucky, you get a magnetic fish. You, you get a metal fish, which has a number on it and you get a prize. And he said, the, the, the water is your mind the fish are architectural ideas in their purest form before they have to deal with issues of construction and, and um, understanding by other people. And the fishing rod is the mechanisms that, such as he proposed. I mean, it's fantastic, don't you think, mm -hmm. to say that? And that was just one conversation out of many. Mm. Or he would be talking and you'd show him something and he'd say, well, why don't you make a geodesic structure. He said, do you know the Lancaster bombers in, he said, in the Second World War were geodesic so that if the fuselages were shot away, they could still fly. I mean, stuff like this, just all about the physical uh, entity, which was architecture. And so it wasn't, it wasn't like Archigram who were kind of, you know, dreamy, let's do this and make it out of rubber. It was much more, um, you know, he dealt with, let's say, everyday practice and how it could be made magical, I think. Is this making sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he was, uh, not just for me, but for lots of people, everyone he taught, well, lots of people he taught were, were touched by him. And he taught lots of people. He taught um, Stephen Bates at the Royal College of Art. He taught Alex de Riker. Um, he taught me, he taught, I think, Michael Hopkins. I think he taught um, Peter Cook. Um, you mentioned the sense of magic he brought to more real or tangible aspects of his work or of practice in general. And for me, that kind of magic is, is what emerges when you look very closely in a very sustained way at something in front of you. The, the longer you scrutinize the present, well, the more bizarre and fantastical it becomes, whether it's the geodesic structure of the Lancaster plane or... I mean, to me, it's a kind of Ballardian sensibility. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? That James Ballard, this um, probably writer contemporary to... Um, Ooh, I've never read, I have to admit. Okay, well, it doesn't matter then. Oh, it's interesting because he wrote a lot about car parks or automobiles. How could I have missed that? Or the, the kind of median on a highway, uh, yeah. <laughs> high rises as well. Uh -huh. It's very banal but fundamental elements of the built environment. I uh, should read him before I die. <laughs> I? Think I, should? I feel like you and him would have been great friends. It's like that, you know, you um, alienated people. Um, Hardly ever, their paths hardly ever cross. Mm. Mm. But, but that's the, I think that's precisely the word that we're orbiting, a sense of alienation or estrangement, you might say. Yeah. And the, the outcome of that 
is that the world is seen uh, from a totally different perspective or you're afforded a different vantage of things that may otherwise pass you by. So this position of estrangement is actually quite productive. Well, can I say that, that the aim, yeah, I, I, I do think that I do what you're describing, which is to see things from other points of view, especially in the photographs and Instagram. But the aim is not for me to enjoy that strangeness, it's to show other people other aspects of the, the things that around them that have become, they've become immune to them, you know, to show them their pleasures and to show them a broader sensibility, a way of thinking perhaps, if they like it. They may not. I have some of your pictures here. Do you? So maybe we can look at a few of your yes, Instagram yeah. pictures together. Let me come around to you. No, I'll come around. I'll come around. That's okay. Yeah, I need the exercise. My God. Should, should I, I, let's should I sign this PDF? <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I just collected a few of the Instagram pictures that were shown at Bet's gallery in 2016 mm -hmm. because I thought it's helpful to speak to something in front of us. Yeah. So obviously listeners can't see these, but they'll be online on Instagram um, after the interview is published. So the first one... These titles are by you, aren't they? No. Oh, really? These are the, the titles of the work as displayed. But by Bet's projects. Mm -hmm. Oh, really? That's mm -hmm. interesting. They're not my titles, but that's all right. Too. Oh, okay. Well, well it'd be I'm interesting to hear your your I'm right with that. I mean, Unportrait is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. I guess Marie had to give them a name so she could sell them. Ah, know? okay. So, I mean, the the first one is the the bridge in Kentish Town over the railway. Yeah. yeah. At night, um, it's very desolate? There's maybe one pedestrian in the No, forest. it's not desolate. You know, I, I, what I found in photographing it was a kind of beauty. You know, it was, I don't know quite how. Sometimes objects, because of the way that, uh, what we're looking at is a photograph with the dark sky and street lights, and then some um, floodlight on, on the wall on the left. And um, it's it's a real place somehow. I, that's what I wanted to, to show that it's, yeah, I mean, we know it and it's been, it hasn't been maintained, but, but it's a real place, you know, and it wasn't intended as a place, it's a railway bridge, you know, it's a pedestrian bridge, but it has placeness in my mind. And I mean, you need these pictures as a series to understand the project. Just to, to kind of explain more to listeners, they're all relatively low quality shot on it. Uh, a mobile phone. In low quality, you yeah, don't mean resolution. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, that's but I think also um, some would probably argue low quality aesthetically as well, dare I say. And I, I think that's what's interesting about them. That Give me their names and addresses and I'll go around and punch them. <laughs> but the, the point being that to a lot of people, these are the pictures that you'd probably delete off your phone or that you'd look at quizzically and understand, why did I take that? Uh, what's its utility? Uh, there's another one here called Snack, uh, which is just a picture of an opened bag of crisps on a table, the napkin underneath. Well, uh, I thought the forms were really lovely. 
you know, and um, it strikes me that that um, aesthetically pleasing things occur quite often outside art and film, and the photograph could perhaps help people appreciate that. You know. Let's look at a few more. This one to me feels like one of the most important ones actually, which is, so it's overnight ferry from Stockholm to Helsinki. The majority of the frame is filled by a blurry blue water. Well, it's, through, it's taken through the window of a ferry, which is the window's got rain on the outside of it. So, and it was, I purposely cut off the horizon just to a little bit. Um, we were sailing all night. I know it was, it was beautiful. You know, it was just the constant rhythm of the boat and going through the water, and you knew that the water would be freezing cold, and that's all it was. It was like a kind of um, minimalist piece of music, you know, it just went on and on and on. <coughs> um, that's what was in my thoughts when I photographed that. To me, it feels almost elegiac. There's something. Yeah quite mournful or sorrowful, but also incredibly beautiful about it. This vast kind of infinite expanse of dark blue water. Well, the nature of images is to um, have people take them in their own way. And, you know, mm -hmm. so, uh, th there is a difference between art and architecture. And, and Lois was right and he said that architects have to please other people, whereas artists can please themselves. And I, I just remember Ronnie Scott saying that his view of musicians was that they were artists and their job was just to play in play their thoughts as clearly as possible and whether people liked it or not. And that's the difference between these photographs and making a building. In a building you you're constantly having to um, address an audience in your mind. When you take photographs, you can do what you want and um, they can operate the level of pure imagery. There's a few more here this is the Highgate Men's Pond, yeah. where I understand you, you're often swimming. I swam this morning there, yeah, I did. It's beautiful, it's one of my favorites. It's very special to um, be in the water and see trees around you. Mm -hmm. um, and occasionally I swim with other architects, less so now, but um, that was nice, you know. Then the last one I chose is looking through a, a car door window, the door is open. The window is a kind of a lens and you're looking through it towards a mountainscape. Yeah. Well, Jonathan Sturgeson and Irina's wife, well, I was staying with them and um, they had a, they have a well, Volkswagen and they have frameless windows now. When I was growing up, windows had a metal frame around them. And, um, they stopped, we stopped to do something. And um, I looked and this green window in the landscape seemed really extraordinary, you know. And I mean, it was instantaneous. Like all photographs, and I've looked at lots of photographs to, to get where I am. Photographs capture something that most people don't see. You know, photographers, from what I can see through doing it, are alert, they're alert to the possibility of pictures, you know, that's what you do as a photographer, you make pictures. 
Well, I've, just, I've just changed the image now. I mean, you're talking about photography, and I've chosen two images from a favorite photographer of yours, Lee Friedlander. Um, and maybe we could start with this one. It's called Putney, Vermont, and it's, I own it. I own a print of that, and it's in my bedroom. It's really beautiful. It, yes, we're, we're standing in a greenhouse in the picture. We're looking at plants, pot plants in the greenhouse, but we're looking beyond the greenhouse to a kind of wooded landscape. There are several depths in this photograph, several, um, several, you know, those plains. Yeah, several plains, and, and Friedlander would have just seen that as a possibility, and then I, I imagine there are probably three or four photographs of this where he chose one that had the most um, power for him. Right. Here's another from Friedlander. It's a photograph of a car window from the outside into the car and then beyond to a person standing on the other side. You can see her through the windshield. And then the immediate foreground is this really stark reflection of clouds in the sky. It's a fantastic composition really extraordinary. I mean, composition in, interests me more and more. When I look at paintings, which I do a lot, they, I look at them for how they're composed, and it's not artificial. It, well, it is artificial. I mean, all images are artificial. They exist in life, but they have to be framed and presented. So within that, you, f you um, compose them. You know? And you might think that's strange to say that a photographer composes, but they do, of course they do, that's exactly what they do, and they do that not, well some photographers do it just to make something that's good looking, and other photographers like Friedlander have a lot more depth in their, in their insight. And then there's a few more images here, not of a photographer's work, but pictures of a particular place that to me has become a kind of a lodestar for you mm -hmm. in making sense of your own work in a way or articulating a certain position about it. So this is Tavora's Park in Porto. Yeah. Remind me the name, I can't pronounce it. Quinto de Conciatrao, I think. And we're looking back down a path towards like an industrial port but in the foreground and middle ground, there's lush bushes and trees, and there's a historic building in the middle, middle ground. But there's a kind of um, confluence of different iterations of occupation, human occupation or intervention in a landscape, yeah. from the really base, kind of shitty industrial landscape to the really elevated, um, kind of classical forms of this building to the left, to the kind of manicured natural landscape of the park itself. And these things in concert seem really important to you. Well, they were. I mean, I, I saw this, I think, a long time after I'd made the Listen Gallery. And, um, and what struck me was that I, what I saw here and in the swimming pool at Lisa de Palmira was this um, acceptance of the industrial landscape beyond the landscape created by uh, here by Tavora, aided by Caesar and the, in the swimming pool um, on the beach by 
um, Ziza. And that seemed to be remarkable. I mean, I'd also been to Lisbon and saw, I think it's Grigotti's um, art centre there, where I remember I was on a roof, there was a beautiful roof garden with a, a restaurant, and the highway in front has a, a very ugly train running down the middle of it. So your access to the River Tagus, which is magnificent, you can't just walk across the street, you have to go in an underpass. So there's, uh, let's say, really destructive things being done. And then Gagotti's um, building, when you're on that terrace, it cuts off the foreground and you just have the terrace and the River Tagus. So it's an image of Eden, you know. Caesar doesn't do that, you just get it all, you know, but it's all, it's um, composition is, um, and I don't think Caesar would necessarily agree with this, but it seems to me that that, that composition shows that, that there's no escape from everything we do, and there's a sort of tragedy through which we have to live and prevail against, you know, and that seems to be a message of some importance more than Grigotti's dreamland of um, blotting out the railway. There's this conviction that, I think as you've said before, there is no Eden. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately <laughs> not, no. No, 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 unfortunately <clears throat> not. And there's a real embrace of the, yeah, the fallout of um, modernity and what we've done to the world we inhabit now. Yeah. Well, that, that's a difficult thing to talk about because I, these photographs were made at a time before we knew the consequences of um, global heating. And so this balance, let's say, in the photograph between the sort of pragmatic and uncaring industrial and the classical pavilion. No, it's not like that anymore. This is the underpinning idea of this photograph from my description of um, the Caesar and Tavoros buildings isn't really borne out by the truth that we find today. So, I want to talk about your drawings a bit. Yeah. So this is a drawing for the Red House. Right. Um, it's drawn on a computer, but it's like a very, a very rough set of lines and polygons that make what look like a living room and then a balcony. There's some furniture and placeholders for a fireplace and I think art on the wall. But what it's made up of is just vector lines text um, and then a kind of collage cutout of a man that's been flattened and is lying on the ground. I mean it's really really naive very almost ham-fisted in a way if you could call it that. But I was trying so hard. <laughs> <laughs> when I first saw this picture I you thought, was, how did you get away with it? I thought that, but I also thought, well, what's really going on here? And I wondered, can you help me unpack it? Why draw like this? Uh, I 
can't really draw people well I could but I, I lost a skill and I, I can't really do captivating hand uh, perspectives which some architects can do and I was fascinated by how you could use um, a, a CAD program um, to sketch in and of course you can make all the verticals parallel because you just repeat them. Um, it's a real, I think, affront to the, the delicate sensibilities of a certain kind of architect who would labor over an image like this for days and days. <laughs> well, that's my kind of, because my kind of ignorance of the world at that time, I didn't realize that this would be so offensive, you know. But and I think that's why I don't, I'm drawn to it. That's why I love it so much. Yeah. That it's a kind of, it's a it's a way of drawing that um, doesn't give a fuck. <laughs> um, but it, it did. I mean, it, it it did, but it was a different kind of. Oh, it's a punk drawing. Yeah, it is in a way. It has a certain. It, it was an attempt to to draw. I mean, I realised there was humour involved. I mean, the drawing of the building itself is quite careful. If you look, it's not. It looks like it's measured, maybe. If we go back to the living room, yeah. instead of drawing a fireplace, you just have the text in this box that says, Blazing Log Fire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, there's also a Poussin, which... And, and Louis, Louis Carr's Esquitar, but Louise Carr's... I made a... I don't spell well, so... Um, there's a typo in the description of a kind of furniture, a table. Yeah. A writing table. It was... Ironic in a way, I, we didn't quite know what Alex would want by way of furniture, but he, he was okay, he wasn't mad about this, he didn't get angry. And the title is? Uh, that's not my title. Okay, I won't read it That's then. That's my gallerist's um, desperate bid to sell it. You know? huh. <laughs> okay. It says, ah, this is the life, a sketch of how to relax in the first floor sound of the warehouse. It's, I wouldn't have said that. Mm. Mm. I would have called it drawing or something like that. <laughs> drawing here's, with Tom. Here's another drawing done by hand this time, not on the computer, of the brick towers in Antwerp, I think. They're drawn with the finger and the drawing through a drawing program on an iPad. Okay. So that, that was an experiment. I mean, it, I began to think that instead of having sketchbooks, which required, that they required somebody to take them off you eventually which the V&A did but at the time I didn't know if they would and so I thought if I drew digitally then it would be much easier to persuade somebody to put them into their archive mm. but it didn't last very long I'm back drawing on sketchbooks again mm. so uh, it's like these these images um, I think they've been described as antique or uh, in terms of like not belonging to the present in a way it's certainly not the way most architects would convey their their work to. Really? Yeah. These, I mean, I didn't show these to the client. I didn't say, this is what your building would be like. <laughs> <laughs> Bisty Meshuggah? I mean, I'm not crazy. Okay. Like, but I do have a business sense. So uh, these, these, the client would never have seen these. Oh, okay. Yeah. These were strictly for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, these were, I mean... I don't know. These I just are process drew. drawings. Yeah, but no, they're not process drawings. Somehow... I have to 
when I get an idea, I have to draw it again and again and again and again and again until I feel comfortable with it. You mm -hmm. know? And it either stops or it becomes the image of the building. Mm -hmm. and, um, or sometimes unavoidably it becomes the image of the building. You think, oh God, that's mm -hmm. what it's really going to be like. Mm -hmm. So I drew it for my own pleasure. I often draw for my own pleasure. I draw, I draw our buildings to my own way. I also draw, I mean, when I'm in the office, I do, I use a Vectorworks program where all of the compli complexities are stripped out of it. There's something anonymizing about the CAD drawing where the hand of the, of the author is erased to some extent. That. No, I don't see that but I think, no, no, to me, there's something um, beautiful about that in terms of maybe the way that authorship is scrubbed a little bit. In the same way, that we find with the bus shelter or the street corner that you were photographing before. There's a kind of flattening out or genericness to the quality of the image if it's made in CAD. That isn't the case if it's drawn by hand. I don't know, you know, I look at, I mean, the drawings, if I, the drawings that I made for publication are completely different, the CAD drawings I made for publication are completely different from what my office would do. And they're much smoother. The office ones are more, and and there was an AMAG published three years ago on us where Anna Leal, who's the editor, has all of your drawings redrawn, and they're drawn redrawn really beautifully. I mean, for publication, and they they have a complete completely different character from from the the working drawings in the office. I mean, there's huge amounts of expression in a CAD drawing that I see. It's not me wishing it, it's me seeing it. So I, I have real faith in in the digital world for um, a continuation of artistic endeavor. Do you want a I cup of coffee or something? Or a coffee would be great actually. Yeah. If there's more ground I want to cover. Oh. I am feeling like I need some caffeine though. Yeah, I'll make a cup of coffee. Why don't we turn all this off? And okay. Or why don't we just, the battery is full. Can we just leave it right. going? Is that better? Yeah, that's okay. It's black, I, I don't really have black any Black is note. perfect. Thank okay. I'm just, the pictures you're taking, or do you have a question? Are you going to say something? 
No, I'm going to throw this uh, in the recycle. We <laughs> have to make sure there are no coffee beans in uh, there, otherwise okay. they, they get difficult with you. Um, yeah, the pictures you were making that we were talking about, oh. the Instagram pictures. Yes. Um, have you ever considered photographing your own work in the same manner? I'm just conscious that it's always shown in this very typical, kind of seemingly objective way, following certain conventions of architectural photography. Yeah, but that's important. You, know, you, you uh, I don't have the skills to photograph it in the same way as I photograph other things. It, but why not? There's something. This is kind of, I think, touching on some kind of contradiction. And that. Well, the reason I won't is because. Of the, uh, the, 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 oh, sorry, hold on. I can't really explain to you why. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, so it would be impossible. <laughs> no, but really, if if the attitude is one of granting or acknowledging the importance of everything you see. Um, why, why is your own work not valid as a subject of that kind of way of looking? Um, I hadn't thought of that until you mentioned it. Um, I think I'll make an answer, which I hope is true, um, that I think all of the photography and all of the hand drawing and the sketching and all of the writing are part of the basic creative world in which I live to do things. And then I make buildings which where I hope qualities are discovered by other people. And in the same way that Elliot didn't want to offer explanations for his poetry, I'd rather that the building was taken as a, a thing that people will look at and um, see in their own way. So for me to impose my visual world on it would not be natural to me. I mean, it's a very valid point, but I, I'm resistant to it. I'd have to think harder about why, why I won't do it. There's a great line from an int introduction essay in the Jasper Johns drawing catalogue I got, which is fantastic. And um, the, uh, the it interviewer is, um, I can't remember, but a significant writer. And he says, um, with your paintings, you could do this. And, um, and John said, but, but I don't want to. And then he said, or you could do that. I don't want to do that either. And the interview is obviously exasperated and says, there seem to be lots of things you don't want to do, Mr. Jo Mr. Johns. And he said, I know what I don't want to do, and that's a lot to know. It's a fantastic line. You know, it's clever, and it's not a put-down. It has truth in it. At the same time, though, you write a lot about your work, no? Yeah. You reflect on your work and you, in some way, interpret it That's true. more through text and through conversation than through image. Uh, it's true, and I suppose what I'd 
say to that is some that those explanations are made for other architects. That's the orientation or people involved in um, culture who want to know something about the thought processes of a maker of things. And um, they're not intended as an explanation or a way to live in the buildings that I make. Um, you know, the buildings that I make have their own life and you hope um, give a life, the possibilities of life to the people who, who live in them. So I, I, I'm not, do you, do you see what I mean? There's a difference between literature, which is about the craft of architecture that other people may find interesting and informative, other architects, other designers of things, and people who use the buildings who should be free to make their own their own mind up. You were doing this so early on in your practice, or even during your time as a student, taking these same kinds of pictures of the city. I'm thinking of the exhibition at the AA in 1990 that was organized by Matthias Sauerbrook. I, I wasn't studying then. That was after I graduated. I, okay, yeah. right. So very early on in your practice. Yeah. Um, this group of architects was invited to present proposals for a development in West London somewhere. Yeah. And instead of doing that, you presented a series of what are now these very recognizably Tony Fretton pictures mm-hmm. <laughs> of, um, <laughs> of these kind of banal and mundane aspects of the city. Um, so there's a funny kind of uncanny consistency there between the pictures you were making in the early 90s and the ones you continue to make now. Yeah. Well, the ones that I made in, in the 90s were sort of agonized. I, was, I didn't know what I could do by way of a physical building in, in, in response to this proposal by Matthias. I didn't, I, but what I, I went to look at the location, I took some photographs of it, I suppose in order to see if I could make a physical object in response, and then found the photographs that um, could be interpreted, and so that's what I did. And I can't remember what the result was. I don't, I don't know what the response was. Uh, it strikes me that the the buildings you make, um, they're doing a similar kind of work to the photography, mm-hmm. in that you'd never take a picture of a camera that took the picture. <laughs> like the buildings on it. feel <laughs> working on it. It's a good idea. <laughs> but the buildings feel like they're machines for attention or for focus or for uh, framing certain aspects of the city uh, in the same way that the pictures were. If we think of the listen, for example, um, and the relationship it established with the school across the street, and this sense that the building was asking you to see the city in a different way. Yes, very much. I mean, that's, that was the sensibility that drove it.
just thinking back to this interest you have in the the, the eloquence of things, hmm. the ability for uh, stuff we've made to be embedded with knowledge and intelligence. Oh. You've described, um, I think in an interview quite early on uh, in your career that most objects in the world have no logical starting point. They're in a different world in a somewhat animal-like state. Um, and then you continue saying, that's what's so great. This requires a particular kind of intelligence, one that is physically based and is shared by artists, athletes, and animals. And of course- Did I say that? It's you said really, that. It's really quite good. It's quite good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I mean, you almost, I mean, it's a, it's a part of your biography that's often underscored and celebrated that you were a boxer. I did that for a ton, in the same way as people might do karate for, for a, a, a sort of vocation. I just did it to experience what a physical, um, combative um, sport would be like. And, mm -hmm. and it was in um, the Polytechnic of London had a boxing club, which was run by a, an ex-professional boxer. And um, it was a bit like the, um, what was it like? It was a bit like the. French Foreign Legion, it was sort of 90% criminals and 2% intellectuals, you know. And we sparred and um, hit each other. And But I never did contests. I mean, the boxing was... Brian Hatton got hold of this. This, this is where you have to be very careful with interviews because you say something that's minor and it becomes a kind of linchpin in their explanation of you. But it's it, funny, yeah. It's like maybe I'm trying to find a point on it or it's not worth underscoring. But. Not really, no. I don't, I don't think there's... I mean, it, you know, I've experimented with lots of things. There are lots of other things I've never spoken about that I do practices, you know, meditative and I do yoga and things like that. But I've always found a way to inquire what my body state can do, you know. Mm. And, um, so yoga is very interesting because it, it seems to me to make connections, a connection between your physical self, your emotional self and your intellectual self, which is really interesting. And I also boxed because I was very aggressive and I wanted to find a way. Um, well, I remember why I did. I, I was in the station and I saw a French tourist beaten by um, a, a, a robber who stole his wallet and we did nothing. We were all, um, everybody was frozen to the spot and I thought that this really is not good enough so I thought I'll box to see if I could not let that happen again. That, that's the truth of that. So I did and um, no, boxing was, it's lovely. You know, I, um, I really so liked it. There's a kind of ethic involved in the decision. Oh, well, I mean, it's like all <laughs> sorts of things. There's never the, the basic one self-defense. There are a number of reasons for having done it, and I, I liked it. But, but even, let's say, an artist like Chris Burden. Uh -huh. um, like, if I describe a work by Chris Burden that maybe you were captivated by in the 90s, I mean, in one in one performance, he was nailed to a car and was driven out into a parking lot. Mm -hmm. uh, in another, he had an accomplice shoot him in the arm at a party. Yeah. 
Um, and you, you've written that you became aware of this kind of work at a time when architecture seemed to you to have nothing to offer. No. And yet your urge to make investigative, expressive work was really strong. Um, so you, it seems like, you know, for thinking about this strange state of the animal or the athlete as it relates to architectural production and your interest in this particular kind of performance work, which is very rooted in physicality. Yes. Um, this seemed to be the, your material at the beginning. Well, I mean, in comparison with what Chris Budd did, a bit of boxing's kind of quite mild, really. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, some of that was to shock myself. You know, I, I didn't write that. When did I write that? I think I wrote that for the catalogue we were in. I work, my work was in, in 9H and I, I, um, the production of 9H was very steady and beautifully curated projects and I wanted to do something that was more uh, disruptive and when I exhibited I put a large prints of um, the poll tax rights underneath my work so I mean whether that was right or not I don't know but I wanted to I wanted to talk about architecture in a different way, you know, I, I don't know quite why. And so to write something like that was, would have been unusual in 9H. And it's not a criticism of 9H. 9H was very well curated. You know, Wilfred was very fine and is a very fine curator. So it wasn't to be um, unpleasant about it. It was just to show another sensibility that most people didn't have. You know, most architects wouldn't have boxed or had any physical impact on the world. I think that's what first drew me to your work as a student in Toronto, not really being aware of the, um, the influence you've had over a generation of practices, but really finding out about you first through your performance work and through these very iconoclastic, kind of mischievous or disobedient ways of presenting architecture or producing architecture or thinking about architecture. That's what was exciting to me as a student, to find this kind of misfit. Um, and that's why I originally reached out to you 10 years ago to talk about your work. And uh, yeah, it was through, in particular, I have them here, a set of images of a performance you did um, with the Station House Opera. With the Station House Opera. Yeah. I just want to find them quickly and show them. Um, I was just a, a player in that. I wasn't, mm. I didn't direct it. But to, to your point about this being something architects then or even now wouldn't do. Yeah. They're four, they look like stills from a video. They're, they're from photographs that I took. I made a piece about getting out and going out and, and I used the camera facing me. It was, a, it was a, an analog camera and I photographed myself. I mean, I couldn't see what I was photographing. So I, I took lots of color slides and then the ones that got there I um I used and they 
were about the sort of Im impoverished existence in which I was living. I was, I was living in a squat um, for a number of reasons. And, um, and so if we could just describe them, what is this? It looks like it's either a hairy belly or scalp or I'm not where, sure. Where, this top way? image. Oh, that's a bed. Oh. That's a bed, yeah. <laughs> so my photography's got better. So There's so. a bed. Okay, you can see it now. A very close-up image of a bed. And then the second image is... A basin. No, it's your chest. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can see, like, your chin and your clavicle. Mm -hmm. And then the third is a wash basin. Yeah. With the water on. Mm -hmm. The fourth looks like it's a picture of you close-up drinking from a yeah. glass. Yeah, from a glass coffee cup. And totally removed from any explanation or any kind of context for the work, seeing these images somehow uh, really excited me. Really? Yeah. To me, um, it was so refreshing to think that um, an architect had given themselves a license to do this kind of work as an architect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not as somebody giving up on architecture and wanting to be an artist, but actually within the field of architecture. Um, and then I think in relation to these images, you'd written that in becoming formalized so it can operate in the world, architecture becomes preoccupied with its own internal concerns and unable to recognize its inadvertent participation in systems of control, which is uh, uh, it's such a thing that a young architect or student would say. Uh, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> I think that's why it resonated so much with me. But like it happens to be true. Mm -hmm. know, but some of that control from this standpoint, I would now say, is valuable. You know, the control of how people approach your house and what they feel they could and couldn't do, you know. Mm. To, yeah. But I think it's a valid point. But I, that, that piece, I had slides, colour slides, and then I had a tape recorder, and I recorded the sounds of me doing the things that were in the photographs, and then I edited the tape, and uh, then you, you could get a twin-tack tape, tape recorder, and you could work a device off the one of the tracks that changed the slides. So you had a slide, I had a slideshow which showed them, and then the noises, and it exhibited for about five minutes in the... Yeah, yeah, to the mystification of everybody. I wonder if we could talk now about influence, legacy, how you think your work has or could shape the future of practice, if at all. What kind of role you hope to play as someone who teaches architecture in the shaping of new forms of practices to come? Uh, I wouldn't even begin to know what a future practice would be. I mean, I think that's something that can only be understood by a generation which is beginning to have um, responsibility for making buildings. So I can't do that and I can't, I refuse to um, teach my own style of architecture as a mode. That doesn't interest me, partly because I wouldn't know what it is, you know, I don't know what it is I'm doing because each time I do something, I, I start from somewhere I don't understand. So I think, as I said earlier, what I, all I can do is to teach um, design skills, how you can uh, recognize that you have an idea and how sometimes you don't feel that that idea is very good, but actually with some persistence and 
a certain type of analytical thought or imaginative analytical thought, you can turn it into a real proposal. And that's that's all I teach, basically. Or I, I teach that there are great architects and they're worth looking up. That they're the two things I teach. Before we started recording, you were describing the um, studio you will be teaching in the autumn, yeah. which has a kind of funny relationship to this emerging focus of adaptive reuse, which mm -hmm. of course is in a way in vogue or very fashionable now and warrants a certain amount of skepticism, but at the same time is also just frankly the direction the practice is going in out of necessity. And so the, the struggle you are identifying is that in teaching reuse, students tend not to learn about planning yeah. and arrangement. And really, you need to teach through the design of novel structures, novel buildings, yeah. uh, in order to give students enough of a foothold or enough of a foundation to become architects in their own right. Yeah. And what I thought was so funny is that you've chosen a site which is an old project of yours, mm -hmm. the Camden Arts Center, and ask them to selectively demolish parts of it. Right. Including your own work. And then eventually, I think, all of it yes. as a kind of pedagogical strategy. Well, but that, then what, what, yeah. what's so exciting or so, so apt or so, so typically you or characteristically you about that is that it's a totally irreverent and, yeah. and iconoclastic decision to make. And you're in a way helping them uh, kill the father, as it were. <laughs> uh, well, maybe. I mean, that's, I don't deny that. I think what... I mean, for some students, it, it won't mean anything. Uh -huh, yeah. They won't get that, and they'll just wonder why I did it. For um, for some students, it's uh, to empower them, you know, to say uh, there's a different way of thinking about things now than there was in the turn of the 20th century when the the original building, which was a library, was made, and then in the I can't remember the early. 20th century, uh, well, 21st century when we made our additions um, and it also might let them when they look at the building and go back to it, they can, it's a building they can visit and visit and visit you know, when they run out of road and they might learn that what we did was clever, you know, they might suddenly think he's not so stupid after all and they might look at the garden designed by Muff and think I never noticed that but now you point it out it's but then why, why erase it? Uh, why erase it? Um, I can't answer, I don't know the answer to that. I, I think it's, and I might be misguided in doing it, but I'm going to do it. I think it's funny in a way. It's an experiment to, um, it's a, an experiment to release students from a time from the tyranny of adaptive reuse. I think to do something like this, my instincts tell me, my intuitions tell me that it's um, liberating in some way. To, for me to say, well, I've had a career and I've done things, things that I think are good, and they also can be 
destroy it and change by other people, you know, that buildings. When I, actually there's a text I might give the students which says that these alterations that we make will be made and unmade by other people, you know, and that it's a continuing process. I, I don't know, sometimes, quite a lot of the time I do things and I'm not entirely sure why, and the, the raison d'etre comes to me quite a bit later. So that's another thing about being a, a person who works with material world. It's you have to trust. You learn to trust your instincts. You know, I had a colleague who we offered an associateship to, and then Don Matheson, who went and formed Matheson Whiteley, and um, then he went to work at Hertog and Dimmer. And I could see, I think, see very clearly why he was doing it. He couldn't see it, and I met, I met him in Tottenham Court Road once, and he said, I still don't know if it was the right decision. And I said, make it the right decision. Own it. You made that decision. It's very important for all of us that, that we own the thoughts that we have and scrupulously turn them into something that other people will enjoy. That's the, the only way that creativity works. It, there's always, even in an even in family life, you know, even in in conducting yourself in public, creativity and backing your instincts and knowing how to control them is intensely valuable. It's not just related to architecture. That would be the core of my teaching. Tony, thank you so much. Well, you didn't eat any of the apricots. I ate most, <laughs> most of them. Scaffold is a podcast from the Architecture Foundation. I'm Matthew Blunderfield and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word and leave a rating on iTunes while you're at it. Thanks to Tony Fretton. Special thanks this week to David Owen, Irenae Scalbert, Peter Sinjin, and Ellis Woodman. Thanks as always to Scandalin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time.